You're listening to the Sewing and Growing podcast and radio show with J and J. Hey, hey, hey! How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. It's Jay, um, and by Jay, I mean Jonathan. I'm doing it alone this week. That's okay. Um, next week, John will be back in the co-pilot seat. Actually, this this vehicle has two steering wheels, so there's not really a pilot and a co-pilot. It's two pilots. So maybe that brings even more assurance to you, knowing that um, there's two people at the helm calling the shots. Or may, uh, Actually, that's probably a bad example. We're just going to go ahead and move on from that. Um, I hope you're having a great 2024. Uh, I was at dinner with my wife last week and we were sitting kind of just reflecting on 2023 thinking about 2024 and i asked her this question if there's anything about her life she would change and I, I thought i knew the answer and good news is she did answer the way i thought she would and she said she wouldn't change anything and i had to reflect a little bit and think hard on that and i wouldn't change anything as well uh, i'm blessed doesn't mean that i am content staying where i'm at but i am content with where I'm at right now, um, that kind of sounds like that didn't make sense. Let me say that again. Um, I want to grow, but I am content in what I have and where I'm at. Um, and I wouldn't really change a thing. And if I had to say, actually, I'll, I'll say this. I would change um, Chick-fil-A being open on Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I wouldn't change anything. Um, but there are some things I would like to change about my habits and my lifestyle um, moving forward in 2024 because we were talking about what we want to be. We want to be uh, men and women of God. We want to be influential. We want to uh, have mass impact and leave a legacy um, and ultimately uh, get to heaven and have have the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. And you know, that doesn't just happen. Um, it requires a life of discipline. You know what? By the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the blood of Jesus, you're going to heaven if you've made Jesus your Lord. That's sealed. It's good. But uh, a victorious life here on earth, a happy, joyful life here on this earth is going to require some discipline. It's going to require you to change some of your ways. Um, so one thing that I'm thinking about changing is really my relationship with the Lord being a lot less transactional. And what I mean by that is I have a nasty habit of coming into God's presence and asking him for something and then leaving and really forgetting about the person who's able to give the gift. And we've touched on this before in previous podcasts. It's nothing new, but it's something that God's really been putting on my heart lately. Um, and my approval rating, not that God should have an approval rating by us, um, but I, I kind of found out that my approval rating is really based on if he answers my prayers and how he answers my prayers. Um, and that really shouldn't be the case because Jesus has already done more than enough for us. Um, by saving us, um, by dying on the cross and shedding his blood. So that should be enough uh, for you to get through life. Um, so I don't know if I'm just speaking to myself, but I found myself um, kind of getting frustrated sometimes if the Lord didn't answer my prayer in the way that I wanted to, or sometimes he would even say no. And 
don't uh, turn me off because I don't think he says no to things like healing and things like that. Um, I believe it is God's will to heal, but there's some things that you pray that they're selfish prayers. They're not aligned with the word of God. They're not aligned with his will. And the Bible says that those prayers are asked amiss, that he probably doesn't even hear them. And sometimes if, even if he does and he knows it's not good, um, he will say no, or sometimes he'll say, wait. Um, sometimes he'll say yes. And no matter what the answer is, it shouldn't change my approval rating. It shouldn't change the way that I worship. Um, because when it gets to be like that, it becomes very transactional and really you are kind of the God unto yourself. Um, and really God is sovereign. Um, and he's already done more than enough not to, and I'm not saying that you can't ask him for things. I'm not saying that you don't stand in faith and you don't believe God and you don't, uh, claim that promise of victory here on this earth. I am not saying that. But I'm saying no matter what the outcome, no matter what the season, right, whether you're abased or you're abound or you abound, you are content and your worship is not affected because you worship because he is God, not for what he does for you all the time, but because he is God. And he already did something very, uh, very, very helpful for you. He saved you from eternity in hell. So I was about to say, I'm going to get off my soapbox, but I'm going to stay on it because I'm doing this podcast solo this week. And I wanted to talk about mercy and forgiveness. And I think mercy really is a subject that we don't talk about a ton. We love to talk about grace. Um, we prefer to focus on grace, right? Over mercy. And I totally get it. You know, as a child, you know, I really wanted to focus, uh, more on the fact that I got to go to the park and less on the fact that I didn't get a spanking, even though I was literally committing mutiny against my mom about 15 minutes beforehand. Right. You know, it was an act of her mercy. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, to not give me a spanking. And that was an act of grace to be able to go to the park anyways. Um, uh, but it's, so I get it. You know, we, we want to focus on grace. Um, you know, we should, and we need to have a healthy concept of grace, but the reality is this, I cannot walk in the grace of God if he didn't first extend his mercy. Okay. So Ephesians 2 one through seven says this, it says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature, children of wrath, just as the others, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So everything mentioned in verses one through three was deserving of death. We deserve to stay dead in that, in really that, that, uh, that place of eternal separation from God. But mercy, what it did is it flipped the script. So a simple definition of mercy is not receiving what you deserve. So it's only by God's mercy that we haven't been wiped 
off the face of the earth. Our behavior disqualified us from relationship. You think about the original sin with Adam. It says, through one man, sin entered the world. So by default, because we are all offspring of Adam, we are born into that fallen nature, and it's deserving of death. We're born into sin. It's deserving of death. But God, who is rich in mercy, rich in compassion, rich in forgiveness, right? Then in verses six and seven, talks about his grace. He raised us up, gave us a seat at the table, and now we're seated with Christ. And I would call this a, a, a true rags to riches story. And I'm going to go ahead and read this a little bit uh, in the Passion Translation, verses 7 through 9. I like this. So it says, Throughout the coming ages, we will be the visible display of the infinite riches of His grace and kindness, which was showered upon us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved by faith. Nothing you did could ever earn this salvation, for it was the love gift from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. So if mercy is not about receiving what we deserve, grace is about receiving what we don't deserve. So that is the unmerited favor part. The grace isn't based on what I did, but it's really based on what Jesus did. And Marshall Townsley, Pastor Marshall Townsley, who's going to be here in February at New Creation Church, defines these two uh, uh, concepts this way. He says, mercy creates a new opportunity and grace fills it with success. So we really need to have a proper understanding and a, and a revelation of both. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about mercy this morning. Um, or really, I mean, I'm recording it in the afternoon. I don't know why I said this morning, you might be listening to it this morning. Uh, but um, I'm going to look at Luke, Luke 7, uh, 47. It says this, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So this is a really powerful statement from God. It's actually telling us, telling me that my love for, for God is directly tied to my forgiveness from God. My love for God is tied to the forgiveness I receive from God. Because he says, she has loved much because she was forgiven much. Does that make sense? So if you are forgiven little, you will love little. But the good news is, is that God forgave much. He forgave the most you can. So there is the ability to love much. Someone who's forgiven much loves much. And someone who's forgiven little loves little. So I'm going to break this down a little bit more in the context of this passage of scripture. Um, I'm going to start in verse 36, and this is still in Luke 7. So it says, a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus over for dinner. A certain sinful woman found out that Jesus was eating there, which um, just earlier in the chapter, Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. And in verse 16 says that the report about Jesus and what he did was spreading around like everywhere, all throughout Judea, and the surrounding area. And that report really gave this woman hope. So she was probably thinking if Jesus could ju- if, if Jesus could raise him from the dead, then surely he can raise me out of my sinful and shameful past. So the woman comes to Simon's house, she sees Jesus and begins to worship at, at his feet. She begins to weep, she washes his feet with his tears, or her tears, I should say, sorry, uh, wiped them with her hair, kissed his feet, and then took her most valuable possession, most, most valuable possession which was an alabaster jar. It was filled with perfume and she anoints Jesus with it. And Simon really, he gets his robe 
all in a bundle, okay? He gets triggered. And he says to himself, wow, you know, if, if Jesus was actually a prophet, he would know that this chick is vile and she's rank. She's a sinner. Like, does he know where she's been? Like, Jesus needs a wet wipe for his feet now. Can someone get him some Purell or something? Um, he's probably thinking all those things. Uh, but here's the fun part. Jesus, uh, he is a prophet and he knows exactly who the woman is and he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. So he confronts him. And he doesn't just call him out. He actually confronts him with a parable. So verse 41, it says this, there was a certain creditor. This is Jesus talking. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. So the two debtors in this parable are Simon and the woman. So Jesus points out how terrible of a host Simon is. And back then they walked everywhere barefoot and with some pretty janky sandals. Okay. So it was pretty customary to offer water and, a uh, you know, a uh, uh, water for for a guest to wash their feet and simon didn't even do that he didn't greet jesus with a kiss nor did he anoint him with oil but this woman he did all or she did all of those things so she recognized her desperate need for forgiveness verse 47 says this therefore i say to you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loves little so she loved much because she was aware of how great her sins were and really how desperately she needed mercy and forgiveness. And Simon, on the other hand, really didn't show any love towards Jesus. He Again, he was the terrible host. He who forgives little loves little. He wasn't aware of his sins. He didn't even see the need for mercy and forgiveness. So if you don't see the need to be forgiven, you can never fully love God the way that you need to. You won't be grateful for what he's done for you. So when this scripture says those who are forgiven much love much and those who are forgiven little love little, it's not talking about how long or how short your list of sins are um, and how that determines your love for God. Really, um, it's it's talking about your awareness, I, I believe. Those who recognize the need for God's mercy and forgiveness, they'll be able to love God more. And what it really does is it humbles you. It puts you in a state of awe and, and really gratitude. So Jesus didn't die more for a long list of sins and less for a short list of sins. No, he died once and for all. Uh, he paid the full price. And if we're being honest, just one sin is really deserving of death. So we like to compare ourselves to others and base our need for God's mercy and even our position with God based on a set of works, right? My good outweighs my bad, so I think I'll be all right. Or my bad outweighs my good, so I'm screwed unless I do a bunch of good, right? How exhausting. So the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our salvation isn't predicated on a works-based system. It's on a Jesus-based system, okay? And he was perfect. He didn't deserve to die, but he still died. And as an act of mercy, he took the punishment for our sin. So again, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. We need to look at where we are now, which is what? Seated with Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're seated with Jesus. And look at where we should be. 
which is actually hell, and begin to thank him for it. Thank him for his mercy. And there's a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. Um, another scripture, Micah seven eighteen. shout out to the book of Micah. Who reads that? I actually, I shouldn't say that. If you're reading the Bible, you probably have read Micah, but it's not a place I frequent often. Micah seven eighteen says this, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. I'm going to take a drink of Coke Zero. Hold on. All right. So God delights in mercy, and really, he always has. Sometimes we look at God in the Old Testament as mean and scary, and the God of the New Testament as loving and graceful. But really, his goal ever since man sinned against him was to show mercy and really to restore relationship. And if you look at the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant, you can see his mercy in action, okay? His mercy was in action through this. So we often like to say that the Ark of the Covenant contained the presence of God, which technically isn't true. The Ark of the Covenant was a representation of God's presence here on this earth, but it actually contained things on the inside of it. And those were actually representations of iniquity that deserved judgment. So if you look at Exodus 25, you look at Hebrews 9, you can read that the Ark of the Covenant contained three very specific items. So number one was a golden jar of manna, all right? And what this represented was man's rejection of God's provision, right? If you look at when Israel was in the wilderness, God gave them food from heaven, and they eventually got sick of it and even resented the manna. And the word manna is actually Hebrew, and what it means is, what is it? Because they had no clue what it was. It, they just knew that when they woke up, it was outside of their tent in the morning. So they resented it eventually. So the golden jar of manna represented God or man's rejection of God's provision. Number two, they put Aaron's rod in there. This represented man's rejection of God's appointed leadership. So the nation complained about Moses and Aaron, and they really wanted to lead themselves. They resented it, and they ultimately rejected it. And the third item in there were the covenant stones, or you could say the 12 commandments. Um, the 10, sorry, not 12, 10 commandments. Um, I wrote down 12. That's clearly a typo. <laughs> um, the 10 commandments. Um, this represented man's disobedience concerning uh God's standard of holiness. This also showed that man was unable to measure up to God's holiness by their by his own efforts. So these three things were worthy of eternal judgment, but God instructed that they be put inside the ark. And what did he cover them with? Okay? I'm waiting for the answer. You can't answer me because you're listening. It's mercy. So James 2:13, mercy triumphs over, I have that written in all caps, over judgment. The mercy seat is what sat upon the Ark of the Covenant. And whatever was placed upon the mercy seat is what was 
atoning for the iniquity that was on the inside. So if you know anything about Old Testament temple rituals, is that in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And you just found out that it created that it contained three symbols of things that needed to be judged and actually atoned for because they were worthy of death. Man's rejection of God's provision, man's rejection of God's leadership, and man's rejection and disobedience concerning God's standard of holiness. So they would slay an all they would slay an animal on the altar that would atone for their sins and they would take that blood and the priest would go into the holy place and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat and it would atone for what was on the inside. So God demanded innocent blood to be sprinkled upon that mercy seat. This was the payment. So you can't atone for the sin of someone with someone who was guilty of the same sin. Because that person needs atonement as well. That's why it needed to be innocent blood. That's why they had to take a spotless uh, uh, animal that was innocent. Because you can't pay for something that's guilty with something else that's guilty. This is why every year on the Day of Atonement, and in Jewish culture it's called Yom Kippur, the priest would take the blood of that animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So, through one man... Sin entered the world, and only through one man could sin be atoned for. And not just one man, it had to be one innocent man. And that man was Jesus. And they had to do, before Jesus, they had to do this every single year because the blood of bulls and goats was like barely enough. It could only cover them for one year, right? Because, you know, God in his mercy wasn't requiring human sacrifice. Thank the Lord for that. He required animal sacrifice, but he knew that the only way to permanently atone for man's sin was an innocent man to die. And aren't you so thankful that out of his rich mercy, he didn't choose one of us? Well, first of all, he couldn't because we're all born into sin. So he had to put on flesh, lay aside his deity, take off his robes of righteousness and come into this earth and live as a man and die as a man so he could atone for man's sins. Man. (laughs) man that's funny uh not what i just said but the fact that i said man after man that made me laugh i'm just so thankful for the mercy of god i'm so thankful for the blood of jesus i'm so thankful for the sacrifice of jesus you know there's so many awesome old testament references um they're types and shadows of christ you look at when israel was uh in the wilderness they were complaining and god sent snakes and they were getting bitten they were, and, and they were actually dying. And so he instructed them to make a bronze serpent. And the interesting thing about bronze is that it's a symbol of judgment. Um, just interesting stuff. If you read the Old Testament, even you, when you read about the altar that was in the temple, it was overlain with bronze, which again, symbolizes judgment. So Jesus um, was covered with our sin, right? He took on our sin had to take on that judgment. He was put upon the cross, right? That's a representation of that bronze serpent. And the sin was put upon him. And it says that they had to look at that serpent and then they would be healed. You had to look at the very thing that was killing you. When Jesus got up on that cross, he took on all of our sin. And those that were there had to look at Jesus and had to look at the very thing that was killing him, that was killing them and understand that that should have been them on that cross. Man, I'm getting off track here, but it's just, ah, it's just so cool. All right. 
So let's look at the New Testament because God really, he still, he still hasn't changed his mind. He still delights in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. So this is where Jesus steps in. Only the blood, right, of someone innocent can atone for sins. So that's why Jesus had to die. Hebrews 9 tells us that the earthly tabernacle that we read about in the Old Testament is just a representation of the heavenly temple. Solomon's temple has passed away, but the temple of heaven remains forever. And just like there was a mercy seat in the earthly temple, there is and will always be a mercy seat in heaven. And when Jesus died, he walked into that temple and he sprinkled his own blood upon the mercy seat, declaring atonement for everyone forever. You can find that in Hebrews 9, 11. Um, I won't read all of that now, um, but it literally says that Jesus walked in and he sprinkled his own blood upon the altar, upon the mercy seat. Hebrews 9, 11. I'm thankful for the mercy and I'm thankful for the blood. So you know that in Exodus 25, God told Moses that it was at the mercy seat that he would meet with him. This is interesting. There's something to be said about this. If we want God's presence in our lives, if we want to meet with him and have his glory in our lives, it starts at the mercy seat. It starts with acknowledging the blood of Jesus. We should acknowledge the blood as often as we can. 1 Peter 2.5 says that God is using us as living stones to build spiritual houses. So we're temples of the Holy Ghost. And I thought this was interesting. In the Old Testament, only the blood that was upon the mercy seat could atone for the iniquity of what was on the inside. It's the same thing with us. Only the blood of Jesus can atone for the iniquity found on the inside of me. And his mercies are new every morning. Each time I mess up, I go to the throne room of grace. And what do I do? I obtain mercy. I acknowledge that the blood that sits upon the mercy seat and atones for the sin in my heart, the slate is washed clean. And then I access grace to help me live free from that sin. Remember, mercy creates a new opportunity and grace fills it with success. Amen. So now if the church is going to be the church, it's crucial that we operate in the same mercy and forgiveness that was shown to us, right? He who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. So there's another parable that really speaks to this and it's found in Matthew. And when it's when Peter's trying to find a loophole in how many times he should forgive someone, right? Um, you know, he goes, how many times should I, should I forgive someone a day? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, seven times, 70 times. Um, and that's some people think like, oh, okay, then just 490 times and then we're good. He was really just making an emphatic point saying it doesn't really matter. Uh, you're going to need to forgive anyways. Uh, and this is why we need to be continually meditating on his mercy and the debt that was forgiven of us. How quickly we forget that God's mercy triumphed over his judgment in our own lives. And in James 2, we find that mercy triumphs over judgment. But the whole context of that verse is that the church is playing favorites. You know, if you read James chapter 2, he's really talking about like, the rich, you know, the one percenters, they're coming to church, they're wearing their Gucci and their Prada and everyone's bending over backwards for them. And the poor come in and they make them stand in the back 
and they judge them. And this is where we read verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says that good that, that God will not be merciful to you if you don't show mercy to others. And that looks a lot like the law of sowing and reaping. It's not just a principle to get money. Oh my goodness. There's going to come a time when you're going to need a whole lot of mercy. So you better be sowing it now. This really needs to be an anthem of your life. When you get into a fight with your spouse, mercy triumphs over judgment. When someone cuts you off in traffic, mercy triumphs over judgment. When you are stabbed in the back, mercy triumphs over judgment. When someone offends you at church, Guess what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. When you have legitimately been wounded deeply by someone and you want nothing more than vengeance, mercy triumphs over judgment. You got to declare this over yourself daily. I delight in showing mercy. So I want to give you a few points on forgiveness before I let you go uh, from this podcast today. A few points on forgiveness. Number one, Forgiveness is what jumpstarts your healing, okay? You can't recover from the wound of whatever happened to you until you make the choice to forgive. So there's this unknown quote, I can't remember who said it, but it says this, that often trauma keeps us at the age we experienced it. So a lot of people are exactly the same age that the hurt came from. So you wonder why you aren't growing and you aren't healing? You aren't advancing in life because your choice to not forgive has stunted your growth and it has stunted your healing. Forgiveness is what jumpstarts the healing process. Number two, forgiveness reclaims your power. Past hurts, disappointments, pain really can become a part of our, of our identity if we're not careful. And when your, when your pain becomes a part of who you are, you're perpetually, perpetually living in victim mode, victim mentality. And forgiveness really allows you to stop playing the role of victim and reclaim your power and gain the victory. Number three, forgiveness is not for the other person. It's for you. It's what sets you free. It's what gives you peace. It's what allows you to move forward. And this is the sad reality because the person who has offended you a lot of times doesn't even realize that they did. And if they do, they've already moved on and they're living their lives. And you're trapped in this jail cell that you've created, but you insist that the other person built it. They're essentially living rent-free in your mind. You got to forgive and free yourself. Here's another one. Number four, forgiveness is a process. I wish it happened instantaneously, but it doesn't. Sometimes it does, but more times than not, it's a process. It takes time for your emotions to catch up to the decision that you've made. And Corey Tenboom said this, forgiveness is an act of the will and a will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. And I think I've talked about this before. I think I've talked, to, I think, I keep saying, I think at the beginning of this podcast journey, I think I did one called Bitter or Better. And it was about forgiveness as well. So I feel, I feel like a few of these points are from then. Uh, go ahead, go back and listen to that one and tell me if it's the same. <laughs> I know this quote was in there as well. But uh, forgiveness is a choice. And you can make that choice regardless of how you feel. And if every day you choose to forgive, eventually your heart will begin to soften and change. And you can one day stand, I believe, totally free of any bitterness towards that other person. And... 
Number five, forgiveness plants the seed of compassion. So when we are in unforgiveness, we're focused on ourselves and what was done to us. And we, again, we play that role of victim and we hear about what someone is going through and inside we say to ourselves, well, if they only knew what I've been through and how hurt I am. And we're so self-centered and we lack any sort of empathy or compassion for others. But when we choose to forgive, the healing comes and we are able to step out of that jail cell and we can see clearly what other people are going through. And that seed of compassion begins, well, it's planted and it begins to grow. And we begin to, we begin to care about others again, as God intended. So thank the Lord for his mercy. And anytime you want to be in unforgiveness towards someone, begin to think about the mercy that was shown towards you. Again, he who loves little, loves little. He who loves much, I said that so wrong. Let me say it again. <laughs> I'm not editing this. He who was forgiven little, loves little. But he who was forgiven much, loves much. And guess what, person, audio listener? You were forgiven much. You deserve to die. But by the grace and mercy of Jesus, you, you aren't. You're not dead. And you get to spend eternity with him. That's such good news. So, Father God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we have new opportunities and your grace fills them with success. As we move through 2024, I pray that we have a mercy mindset and we keep it at the forefront of our thinking. We think about Jesus. We think about the blood. We think about the cross. Because what does that do? It keeps us in a place of humility. It puts us in awe. It puts us in a place of gratitude. And I can express forgiveness to anyone if I can focus and understand and truly know how much was forgiven of me. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And I claim that same motto. I delight in showing mercy towards others in 2024. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you for sticking with us. Thank you, man. Thank you for sticking with us during the terrible audio. Uh, I apologize. Uh, that was hard to listen to, and I was the one who had to edit it. But the audio is back. The quality is back. And hopefully, maybe some of you who have shied away, you're, 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 you're kind of checking back in, and then you realize, oh, the audio is good, and you're going to start listening again. Um, but no matter how many people are listening, we're so thankful. Uh, we'll catch you next time on the Sewing and Growing Podcast with both Jays, John and Jonathan. See you next time. <laughs>